This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everybody, Theta here. Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Fall 2017 Season, Episode 4. Today we're going to be talking about Land of the Lustrous, Episode 4. And I've got to say, this episode was much more of a return to form. The wanton silliness of the snail plot from last episode appears to continue into this one, but as soon as the snail begins to speak, it actually changes from a gag into a character. By episode's end, what appears to be a new comedic relief character turns out to be nothing of the sort. Now we can look back and see that the seeming silliness and innocuous nature of this character was a smokescreen. It was an illusion meant to fool the audience into underestimating the snail, and so when the characters themselves underestimate what might be going on, the audience finds it relatable. This episode then changes how I have to think about last episode. So, sorry I hated on you, Land of the Lustrous. I should have trusted the instinct that made me pick this show in the first place. Oh, but uh, that snail fight cinematography from last time? Yeah, that's still awful. You're still on the hook for that. Now this video took me a lot longer to do than normal. I'll talk about it more in theme. But a lot was going on this episode that's not just narrative, that's not just characters. And I honestly struggled to get my head around all of it. Now, I don't actually think I succeeded. I don't think I actually did get my head all the way around what's going on in this episode. And again, we'll talk about it in theme, but eventually I have to put a video out regardless. So here we are. Let's talk about the usual suspects here. You'll see what I'm talking about later on in the episode. I've got quite a bit to talk about at the very end as well. So goal-wise, we have major movement on the Lunarian's goal of capturing the gems. Technically, the episode ends and they haven't captured anyone, but you can see that this is a much more thorough plot than they usually go in for. I'd said in a past episode that we might see this broaden in scope, that it actually might be a bigger deal than just trying to catch individual gems, and I think this is probably the first hint of that. For starters, this is probably too much effort to try to just get Fos, right? Like, they've obviously done the ambush and capture one gem at a time thing before. Sending in a heretofore unknown member of a different species to try to subvert them and betray them is simply not the kind of thing that's going to work a second time, right? So I think it's pretty likely that this is a much bigger deal. It's a, it's a bigger trap. They're trying to ensnare maybe a bunch of them together or pull them off the island for some reason. I don't know. But clearly this is more than just trying to get Fos, like they really want Fos or something. Added to that, I had wondered before if risking their lives, if that's what they're doing, just for pretty gems uh, made sense. That maybe their goal was something beyond just wanting adornments. And now that Ventricosis has given us this mythological tale of how humanity might have descended into these three species, and that it's possible that they can be reunited, then it would actually make a little more sense that that's their actual long-term goal, or at least some faction of them want that goal. They want to bring about perhaps the rebirth of humanity and maybe Earth back to its former glory, or who knows what. In order to do that, they need the gems because they are the bone of the bone, flesh, soul trifecta that gives this episode its title. For that kind of long-reaching goal, I can suddenly believe that you would risk life and limb. We also get some movement on Fosa's kind of main goal. We mentioned before this has taken the highest priority for her, this finding a place for Cinnabar in their society. This time we get to see that she has chosen Cinnabar not only above her other goals, but above her own safety and her own need to be obedient to her society. She even challenges Master Congo on the fact that Cinnabar has been banished to the night and makes kind of an interesting discovery that that was actually originally Cinnabar's idea. Maybe it's not quite working out the way she wanted, and I think it's important to note that this doesn't change Fos's goal at all. Cinnabar may have chosen the Night Watch, it may be her idea, but Fos can tell it's not enough, and Fos is not dissuaded at all from continuing to pursue that. Even if it means going into the ocean against wishes, even if it means being deceitful and pretending she's hiding in her bed, even if it means putting herself at risk, she knows this, 
but none of that's become more important to her than delivering on her promise to Cinnabar. Finally, with a new character comes a new goal. At the very end, we discover Ventricosis, our snail, actually has a goal of her own, which is to get her brother back from the Lunarians, and she has set up this whole exchange with Phos and luring her out way away from the island in order to accomplish that. Whatever fledgling friendship or mutual understanding is happening between her and Phos, that's not as important as this goal of getting her brother back. We'll see next time how that actually shakes out, but at least now we understand what drives her. Moving right along to conflicts, we talked about last time that Phos may have changed, that might be a conflict, and it's hard to say at this moment if Phos was singled out ahead of time, or if she just ended up being the one lured out there because she is the only one that understands Ventricosis. But either way, the fact that she can understand her is what leads to her being the one in that situation. While this has certainly escalated conflicts and added a new conflict, that doesn't mean this conflict is necessarily over. The fact that Phos can communicate with Ventricosis and perhaps other of the Admirabilis Admirabilis? I guess that's how that's said. That may end up being more of a conflict in the future. That may end up being very important to how the story goes. Uh, the main conflict of the series, which is the Lunarians kidnapping the gems. Obviously, it turns out that the snail was a ploy the whole time. I mean, that shouldn't be too surprising since they brought it in, but it definitely didn't go out the way we thought. The snail presented enough of a threat with the whole eating them thing that we forgot that, you know, the snail might actually be infiltrating your society. I don't know if they knew already that it was going to be able to communicate with them or not, but the kidnapping of the gems is about to ratchet up, I'm pretty sure. Like I said, this is most likely a trap to try to get a lot of them away from the island, for whatever reason, and them changing tactics in the way they have is clearly an escalation of the main conflict in the series. Now way back in the first episode, I added a conflict of Phos wanting to join in the fight, wanting to engage with the Lunarians directly, but actually being too brittle for that. The series really kind of starts off because she's too brittle for a lot of things that would be useful, and so they've been struggling to come up with something for her to do. Well, instead of taking this to heart, Phos constantly puts herself in danger, constantly risks being injured, and sometimes is injured. The end of this episode just helps remind us that she hasn't learned anything, at least about this. Even Ventricosis brings up that she could get injured there and be unable to be rescued in the bottom of the ocean, but Phos is focusing on her goal above that consideration. Now that may be admirable from a character standpoint, but the fact that Phos keeps putting herself in situations that she's overmatched for is an ongoing tension. It's an ongoing problem that the characters around her are having to deal with. Anyway, this just helps remind us that this is still a conflict. This is still going on. Finally, the new conflict, kind of obvious, but Phos is trapped off of the island. I don't know if she's actually gonna be kidnapped or not. That's where they ended off, but they showed us enough so that we know that she can't walk because they destroyed her legs. She's very far away from the island. The sun's going down. She's not gonna be able to move soon anyway. So no matter what, she's in a dire situation. Dealing with the outcome of this new conflict is likely what will shape the next episode. So it may be that we take this off the board next episode, or maybe it moves to some new stage of conflict. We'll see. Moving on to characterizations then, I'm gonna start off talking about Master Kongo. Now the scene that begins this entire episode appears to be a dream sequence that he's having during his meditation. Now the scene raises a lot of questions, but we'll deal with that a little bit later. As far as his characterization goes from this scene, I think it's clear that he is hiding something from the gems. I think there is some secret or burden that he bears that he's not willing to share with him, and that is at least a part of why he says that was reckless. Now, although the episode begins with the scene which makes him seem a little bit more alien, a little bit more removed from the gems, most of the rest of this episode actually humanizes him. There's a lot of things that happen here that make him a little more endearing as a character, explain a little better why the gems like him or are respectful of him. He is very much in a father or lord type role to these gems. They very much bask in his praise and shrink from his reproach. It even seems that some of our gems derive some of their meaning, some of their purpose, just from his attentions, just from his praise, just from his acceptance. Now, as far as I can tell, he's not using that to some ill end. He does seem to actually care about the gems. I even think he manages to come off as warm without actually displaying what we would normally think of as warm characteristics or warm emotions. Like, I'm pretty sure he hasn't smiled yet in the series, but he's so serious all the time that it crosses into the realm of humor. There's two examples of that just in this episode. The first is when Ventricosis falls on his head and everyone struggles to keep a straight face and can't, except for him. He's completely nonplussed by this. 
The second instance also involves her, where Fos mistranslates what she's saying, and Kongo gives a careful consideration and disagreement with what Fos said. In the meantime, Fos and Ventricosis are fighting in the background. That contrast of his seriousness with an absurd situation makes him relatable, strangely. Like instead of being dour and unapproachable, he actually just seems a little bit naive, or someone who's wise in many ways of the world, but maybe not socially. And so they're kind of endearing in their clumsiness. I don't know. Now, I don't think the seriousness and this naivete all by themselves endear him. I think contrasting that with the way he is patient with Fos, the way he's clearly disturbed and upset that he hasn't solved things for Cinnabar, I think it's the contrast with these that actually helps humanize him. In the case of Fos, she was attempting the old adage of it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, and was trying to take off with their new uniforms and their anti-ocean cream or whatever it is without asking anyone at all. When she gets caught, Congo doesn't punish her exactly, he just tries to explain to her why this is not the right sequence of events, why she's actually being derelict in her own duties, and this is very much in the mode of a parent figure trying to guide a child along the right path. We know already from past episodes that he's very aware of Fos's rebellious and kind of does her own thing, buck authority tendencies. And as far as I can tell, he has not tried to change that about her, but rather incorporate it into something she might be good at. It's part of the reason he gives for assigning her the encyclopedia task. This is why, too, I think he reacts the way he does when Fos tries to question him about Cinnabar. His very first reaction is to apologize. It's clearly something that is on his mind, not something he did and forgot about. He knows the situation's not perfect. It seems he understands that for Cinnabar, merely living is not enough, even though he tried to argue that. As he says, she is far too kind and far too wise to accept that. And you also get to see how his hands are a little bit tied with the whole night watch thing, because he knows it is probably a little bit useless, and it's obviously not working out the way they hoped, but because it was Cinnabar's idea, he doesn't want to take it from her. After all, her finding her own sense of meaning is what's important here, not what he thinks, right? I think this whole bit where he's talking about Cinnabar, and you can hear the way he feels about it in his voice, you can see the images of him trying to console her in the past, no matter how stern or serious or aloof he may be, no matter what he is hiding, because I'm positive he's hiding something, I think it's hard to argue that he doesn't legitimately care about the gems, that he legitimately cares about their welfare. Whether or not he's always made the right decisions for that, we're just gonna have to see. I think that's gonna be part of what unfolds in the story. Either way, it was nice to get a little bit broader range of characterization for him, because he is still kind of a mysterious figure in all this. Speaking of Cinnabar, she doesn't actually appear in this episode, but she does show up in two different flashbacks from two different characters. The first is when she's relating to Ventricosis what the deal is with her and Cinnabar, why she feels she has to go to these links for her. And I don't really think I considered it before, but Cinnabar likely is entrusting Fos with the secret. And the secret of waiting until she's being taken away is probably the closest thing to having suicidal tendencies in this society. I don't think I'd really realized it before, but there is a certain gravity to that type of confession. And I think this actually helps us understand Fos a little better and why she is taking this to heart so much. The other flashback scene is when Congo is talking about how the Night Watch idea came to be. We can see that even long before she was banished into night, Cinnabar was very despondent, very emotionally affected by how isolated she was. As Congo himself says, we are too complex to be content with merely living. And while I think the gems kind of run the gamut from simple-minded to complex, Cinnabar is absolutely on the complex side of that. And seeing the attempt to comfort her by Congo, and her pulling from him, and her trying to touch the flowers, and then later cutting to a scene of all those flowers in that room being dead, that's really heartbreaking. You really understand where Cinnabar's coming from a little better, just from these little flashbacks, I think. So to move on to our main character, Fos. Now after a whole episode of absence, we definitely make up some ground characterizing her at this time. Now I'll get to this list of things I've written down in a second. Just going back to the bit about Cinnabar, whatever else you can say about Fos, whatever other drawbacks she has, and she has them, being able to see what an awful situation Cinnabar is in, and then knowing that Fos is like the only person in the society that's decided to just completely sell out for her benefit, elevates Fos to me in, in, in a huge way. Like Congo's obviously very aware of the situation, Rutile is as well, the other gems have their roles and that's what they're focused on, and no one knows quite how to deal with Cinnabar. But I think everyone knew what the deal is except for Fos. 
And when Fos finds out, it's transformative. Seeing someone else in a worse situation than herself inspires her to do things that she otherwise wouldn't do. Inspires her to think of someone besides herself. And getting this extra little peek into Cinnabar's past that Congo gives us this time, and that Fos gets as well, I think makes us all a little bit more sympathetic to Fos's goals and the way she goes about them, and even the mistakes she's going to make. Like, yeah, it's probably not a great idea to trust your new, strange, talking snail friend, and to disobey everyone and go out into the ocean, especially when you're as weak as you are, but because we can understand how noble her intentions are, how she's the only person in the society that has any sense of urgency about what's going on with Cinnabar, we're willing to give her a pass on this. We even find ourselves rooting for her. And I think whatever else you can say about Fos, this makes her a redeemable character the whole time. Now, luckily, that's not all we have to say about Fos. We knew before that her obedience to Master Congo, to the society, has some limits. But this is the first time I can think of where she was specifically told not to do something, and she did it anyway. She goes into the ocean after being forbidden, but she's not doing it to be obstinate or out of some whim. She's doing it out of a concern for others. Firstly, Cinnabar, and secondly, Ventricosis. Now, I think I understand this a little bit better, knowing that it's a secret that Cinnabar has told her, but Fos has taken that trust placed in her very seriously. As Fos says, no one's ever counted on me for help before. And the idea of actually being the hero for once makes her light up, gives her a sense of purpose. I think the fact that she's taken this trust seriously and how much it galvanizes her helps us understand Fos entirely, helps us understand what is driving her. I think giving her ventricosis as a kind of neutral observer for her to confess all this to lets us see very clearly what Fos is feeling as she tries to justify her actions to someone else. I think this gets strongly reinforced when she's actually going down to the ocean, and it's brought up that she could be injured down there, she could be trapped down there. And Fos explains that it's not that she doesn't understand that, it's that she's the one that started making promises. That is to say, that she's accepted that there may be consequences for her resolve, and she maintains her resolve anyway. Finally, and it's come up before, but Fos can occasionally be oddly perceptive. As much of a space case as she sometimes seems like, she definitely picks up on little things. She definitely could be a thorn in your side if you think you can easily manipulate her. Now, Ventricosis, who we'll talk about in a second, turns out to be a pretty skilled manipulator, but she does make the statement that Fos probably gives Congo a hard time. Now, I find that a little bit ominous, like maybe Ventricosis knows part of what Congo isn't telling them. The point is that Fos has demonstrated these flashes of insight before, and I feel like we can probably count on that happening a few more times as the series goes on. Just always know that Fos, despite being simple sometimes, or not understanding as well, or being downright silly or childish, can have these moments of clarity, can have these moments of putting it all together. That is, in addition to everything else, an important part of her character. So then let's actually talk about Ventricosis, our new character. Quite the slippery one, in more than one way. Now, I expressed this last time, and I feared we had suddenly had a cute mascot character added to our uh, show. You can imagine how delighted I am to find out that it's nothing of the sort. It's actually this very complicated, very interesting character, full of information we didn't have before, adding an entire new twist to everything. She seems to be a legitimate she. Their race, as she explains, does have a cycle of reproduction and death. And so between that knowledge and her comments about her water jugs, I think we can safely assume that she is legit female, not the pretend female that I'm referring to the gems as. She has a bit of a chameleon personality. She changes how she acts depending on what it is she needs. The way she acted with Daya last episode, despite not being able to communicate with her. And then the way she kind of slowly manipulates Fos into doing what she needs her to do this episode. She starts off kind of quirky and hard to take seriously. She prompts Fos a little bit more to find out about Cinnabar, realizing, I think, that this is her leverage. She first preys on Fos's good nature that she admitted to her, the way she wanted to be the hero for Cinnabar, to try to get her to go into the ocean, saying that there's one there who looks like you. All the time, the person who looks like you is her. She could have said any of this way she was. Once that doesn't work, once they get caught, then she, I don't know if she's pretending to shrivel up or not, she does eat something as soon as they get into the ocean, but that definitely is the second tack. Wanting to maybe help Cinnabar by going and finding this person that looks like her is one thing, but Ventricosis plays on Fos's good nature to not let her starve, which is what she thinks is happening. She realizes that the gems don't quite understand death. She was present last episode for their conversation about death between Daya and Bort, Rutil, and Jade. 
and she uses the possibility of her own death not only to prompt Fos along, but to also illuminate her a little bit on what death is. This is all such skillful manipulation because she made herself seem so innocuous, so harmless, so silly and stuff. Like I realize she's a sexual being and I don't doubt that all her flirtatiousness with basically every character is legitimate, but all of this is a very disarming tactic. It makes you not even question that she might have some ulterior motive the whole time. She even says that her mind wasn't working right before and a lot of this is just coming back to her. Again, keeping us from suspecting that she's had some motive all along. I mean, because maybe she was a little addled and docile when she was a huge snail, when she was fattened up by the Lunarians so that she would grow that giant shell. But obviously luring Fos or someone out that far to where the Lunarians are waiting was a previously decided upon plan. Which means who she was had to be capable of understanding and agreeing to that plan back when she was a huge snail. So all of this acting like she just remembered there's someone in the ocean who looks like you, and oh, now that I'm close to my homeland, I'd really like to see it again. This is all just a put on. This is what she wanted from the beginning. Now we'll talk about this, but we don't know yet if Fos was the target or it just needed to be somebody, or if the idea was to specifically choose someone who would cause the most disruption or put the most gems in danger. But Ventricosis has managed to get very weak Fos far away in a situation when there's probably people who will come after her and she does the whole thing just through manipulation. Whether Ventricosis is a good guy, bad guy, somewhere in the middle, which is I think is most likely, I think it's very safe to say that this is a dangerous character. This is someone to be wary of. And not just because she's so good at manipulating Fos and so good at sorting out what's going on in the society, but because she has very strong resolve. She's doing all of this to try to get her brother back. Now I believe her when she's telling some of these stories where she's having this actual talk with Fos about death. I don't think that she is just a heartless monster. She's still willing to betray the gems to get her brother back. That is her main goal. That is what keeps her going forward. Anyone that is that determined and that skillful at manipulation is someone you need to be careful of. Is someone you would much rather have as a friend than a foe. So we do get just a little bit more characterization of two other characters, Rutil and Euclase. Euclase at this point hasn't gotten a whole lot of characterization other than just as a nice foil to Jade, a little bit more understanding, patient version of her. This time we get to see that she has hidden depths. She's actually very introspective. She's actually a little bit shy. She's much more of the observer than the doer. I'll go over all this again in theme, but this whole conversation between her and Rutile about death, about what it means, is a very interesting break in the middle of all of this. And choosing Euclase and her character to muse all these things helps us understand Euclase a lot. She's still not some major player, but she's certainly got rounded out quite a bit. At the same time, Rutile, who really just gets a little bit of characterization as we go along, is shown to have some of the same type of introspection, but she actually seems a little bit more detached from it than Euclase does. Rutile, and I think this goes to her sort of scientist type persona, is kind of clinical and kind of disconnected from her observations. She observes that they're probably not as afraid as they should be of what's going on with the Lunarians. That doesn't move her. That doesn't change the way she feels. She is a detached observer of her own. Very much like a scientist conducting a study in which there needs to be careful controls. Related to that, she clearly has a sense of professional pride. Her role in society, I think, gives her a lot of purpose. And while I think part of this is that she just likes to harass Fos, the fact that Fos seems different after being put back together kind of insults her sense of professionalism. Like, let me try putting you back together. Maybe I can solve this whole you can talk to snails thing. I mean, I'm pretty sure the scientist part of Rutile actually finds that fascinating and doesn't want to interfere with it. So this is much more a, let's screw around with Fos a little bit because being dour and serious and completely disconnected all the time isn't quite who I am either. Oh, one more thing. I didn't write her up here, but Bort smiles for the first time in the series in this episode. And it's after receiving praise from Congo for dealing with the Lunarians while he was meditating. This I think is at least a tiny peek into what makes Bort tick, that being the main protector and or getting Congo's praise might be part of what drives her. I don't think it's the only thing though. I didn't mention it, but last episode, when Daya comes home after figuring things out thanks to Cinnabar, Bort is waiting on her. And I think this is significant only because the gems don't typically stay up at night, right? In fact, they have trouble staying awake, have trouble seeing, apparently have trouble moving around. And yet there's Bort waiting on Daya to come back like a parent waiting for their teenage child to come home. It's too early to say, but it may be that in addition to protecting everyone, Bort feels especially like her role is to protect Daya. 
and getting praise from Congo and fulfilling her role is part of what makes her tick. So in world building, the dearth of information we got last episode was made up for in spades this time. Our little slimy puppy actually turns out to be a member of a third sentient species to go along with the gems and the Lunarians. These are apparently a sea-dwelling people, so we now have sea-dwellers, land-dwellers, and sky-dwellers in our three sentient species. They too have been hunted by the Lunarians, almost to the point of, well, not extinction, but to total capture. Ostensibly because the Lunarians covet the shells they can make in the same way they covet the gems for their gem structure. Now Ventricosis tells a story that suggests that maybe the shells are not the end of that story, but the biggest revelation here is that this is not just a gem versus Lunarian conflict, that there's a lot more actors in this grand drama. These Admirabilis are different from the gems. They're mortal. They reproduce sexually, it seems. Like I mentioned, I think it's safe to bet that they are gendered, that they have a concept of male-female at the very least, and they do so because they need to reproduce, and they need to reproduce because they are mortal. Something else we learn here is that the gems really don't understand what death is. Euclid and Rutile muse about it earlier on, but the real conversation about death takes place between Phos and Ventricosis, where Phos is trying to wrap her mind around what it would mean to be dead. We've mentioned before that there seem to be a lot of things the gems don't understand or a lot of knowledge that they might be missing, but not even understanding what death is makes them really hard to relate to. I mean, death is the one sure thing in every creature's future. Not even having a firm grasp on what it is is very confusing, that it's very hard to relate to. It makes the gems very much an other. The Lunarians may seem eerie and incomprehensible, but how much more should the gems seem that way to basically every other creature in this world? and even to us, the audience. A couple of other minor things before we talk about the flesh-bone-soul story. Ventricosis makes a reference to the sweet waters and sands of the moon, and while I realize we don't really know much about the Lunarians at all, it seems that the moon itself in some way is very different from the moon as we understand it. I know I've brought this up more than once, but we do have a little more confirmation that Master Kongo is actually different from the other gems in some way. It might be lost a little bit in the shuffle when Ventricosis falls onto his head and the other gems struggle to keep their composure, but she makes a comment that she's surprised that she can't eat him. That is, I guess, she can't dissolve him the same way she could to the other gems, because I guess she tried. It's a very brief aside, but I think it implies that Master Kongo is some way fundamentally different. And we had a little bit of that already with the fact that Jade broke herself trying to wake him up once, the fact that he meditates at all, it's not written up here, but it seems that he doesn't actually know how long he's going to meditate when he does so. He even slips up and starts to call it sleeping and instead of meditating, so I think that really is what it is. It's him hibernating. This is just one more piece of evidence that one day we're going to have it revealed that he is fundamentally different, and they're just kind of setting us up for this by teasing out a little information all along the way. So then let's talk about the soul, flesh, bone story. This is probably the most dramatic bit of world building we've had in the series so far. Now, Ventricosis relates the story as though it's a bit of a folk tale, a bit of cultural mythology, and that's not too dissimilar to the little fairy tale-like intro we had back at episode two. These two tales, though, have enough overlap that I think we can conclude that some things about them are definitely true. For one thing, both of them mention a series of six events or six things happening, and that those things happening altogether, or the sixth one of those things happening, is what started the era that we're currently in. Now, the way Ventricosis tells this makes me immediately think of major extinction events. Now, there have been a lot of extinction events since life came forward, but in popular geology, if there is such a thing, in popular geology, we understand that there are basically five major extinction events where huge numbers of species died. The last one of these is probably the most famous. It's the one that ended the dinosaurs. But a lot of people believe we're actually living through a sixth extinction event, known as the Holocene extinction, after the epoch that we're currently in. This extinction event is not caused by comets or by glaciation, but by the activities of humans. To me, the nature of the story and then finding out that these three species may be descended from humanity, it makes a lot of sense that the sixth extinction event caused by humans is the thing they're referring to. That's the sixth period. That's the six stars, the major extinction events. That's what resulted in the world being the way it is. If that human-caused mass extinction took the form of, say, global warming, melting the ice caps and all that, suddenly our little bit of land, lot of ocean, makes a little more sense as well. The other reason I think that these six things refer to the mass extinction events 
is thematic in nature, so we'll have to talk about it when we get there. But I think this is likely what this is. It wasn't literally six stars, six moons, and all that. It's more like six enormous events in the history of life. The story gives us other little insights into things that we've noticed about the world already. One is the tale about the bones of the story making alliance with other animals, and this sounds very much like the way the gems work. We've been told they actually coexist with microorganisms, that that's the reason they can be reassembled and be fine again. We know they need light to survive, so it's likely there's some sort of photosynthesis or something's going on there. We also get to the nature of our three species filled out just by the story. The gems are bones, they last, they're immortal, they're durable, just like we think of bones, don't change very easily, they break instead of bending, etc. The Lunarians take the role of soul. Well, this makes a lot of sense from what we've seen from them, the way they appear and the way they seem to vaporize, the otherworldly, floaty kind of thing they have going on. Soul is a very good designation for them. Finally, that leaves the Admirabilis as being the flesh component. Well, we already know that they die and reproduce, we know that they are sexual beings, and honestly, just the way Ventricosis acts. She's very flirty, she's vain, she's potentially hypersexual. They're able to change their forms quite dramatically, it seems. These are all flesh, living, organic, um, desires of the flesh uh, type themes here, right? These three sentient species, personalities and societies, the things they value, the way they act, might match up very nicely with this idea of soul, flesh, and bone. I realize this is a little bit of myth-making and that the story is supposed to match that, but at least it gives us a little more insight into what these three societies would be like, especially compared to each other. Finally, the part that is most informative both for the past and the future is that these three sentient species diverged and descended from humanity, and that there is some kind of belief that if you brought them back together, humanity could be reborn. This effectively answers some questions for us going in both directions. I said before we need to be watching to understand how the society came to be, why it is the way it is, there's lots of funny things about it that suggest it wouldn't have occurred naturally, and also a potential future track, which we talked about already, this actually might be Lunarian's big goal. It's entirely possible the descent from humanity is why the gems are the way they are. Maybe it's why they want to kind of look like humans, the fact that they wear clothes, they powder themselves to make sure they look like they have skin. We know already that their memory is some sort of structure within them, so maybe it's possible they have some kind of genetic memory, for lack of a better word, of humanity, of what it meant to be human. It's not just their superficial trappings that make me think this either. There seems to be a little bit of a shyness that asexual creatures probably shouldn't have. We've gotten two examples for sure so far. One was Daya's reaction when Fos peeked between her legs to confront Bort. Now she had a very blushing, embarrassed reaction to that, but why? There shouldn't be any sort of shyness about different parts of the body that, that we associate with, you know, sexual agency. And yet she still has that reaction. I wouldn't have thought too much about that, except in this episode, Euclace, when she disrobes to get covered up with the stuff from Rutile so she can actually go in the water, instinctively covers up when Red Barrel busts onto the scene. She's shy about her nudity. But why? Why be shy about the part of her body that was being covered by the uniform before? Both of these reactions together, mixed with the way they act and behave like humans without being humans or having any real reason to be that way, makes me suspect that maybe they have some sort of vestigial memory of being humans, or at least coming from humanity. Oh yeah, before I forget, I didn't write these up here, but we get a little bit of information from Euclase. She talks about thinking back about how the Lunarians have attacked them over the previous 2000 plus years, and that tells us that uh, well, she's at least been around and the Lunarians have been attacking for 2,000 plus years. Additionally, saying they attack once every three sunny days is significant because A, it tells us that the escalation in their tactics really was a big diversion, like we guessed, and B, the fact that it's during the sun implies that they need the sun to function in the same way that the gems need the sun to function. I don't know what that means exactly, but the fact that they come when it's sunny and never come at night certainly drives that point home. They're not that different from the gems in that respect, it seems, and that especially makes sense now that we know that they might share a common ancestor. So then, let's talk about theme. I mentioned already, I struggled to wrap my mind around this episode. All the things that this has introduced into the series, all the new thematic elements, how much they've raised the stakes about the different species and what they might be striving for, how the history of this world might have descended from our own, 
the implications of what happened and why. There's a lot going on, and they dumped a lot of world building and a lot of new theme on us right before what I think is supposed to be the first act break. Which of course is a great time to drop all that information. You can tell the importance of all this just from the way this episode ends. There's a complete tone shift in this last part. From the moment Ventricosis turns into her true form, we have a entirely different animal on our hands. Just as the silliness of her snail form has vanished, so has the light-hearted, how did I get into this mess feeling that Thos has been under the whole episode. To match this shift, we get the most robust development of our world and its backstory that we've gotten so far, all wrapped up in a mythological vehicle like before. It's a story that ups the stakes of the Lunarian's gambit considerably, teases out possible motives and a hidden history, all while raising interesting philosophical questions about their forebears, the humans. This entire shift compared to the wackiness, silliness of Ventricosis and the snail plot that came right before this emphasizes the importance of it by contrast. We are meant to have our focus drawn to the things Ventricosis tells us, both about the history of the world and the thematic elements, some that are perhaps new, that are being introduced and touched upon. Again, I don't think I have successfully wrapped my head entirely around this, so let's start with the ones that I do know exist. Innate value versus purpose. Uh, this gets a little bit of work in a couple of different ways. I think the scene that is most on the nose with this theme is when we're seeing Kongo's flashbacks of dealing with Cinnabar before she's actually banished into night. And he talks about how he tried to convince her that just living itself was enough. But then the fact that Cinnabar rejected that idea needed some purpose of her own, which is how the Night Watch came to be. Kongo may very well feel that your value is innate, that the fact that you exist is enough, but Cinnabar at least outright rejects this. She derives her value from having some purpose. She had nothing she could really do, nothing that gave her meaning there in the society, and it turns out that her proposed idea of being the Night Watchman has not done it for her either. And this leads directly to her personal crisis, which becomes Fos's major goal and was driving her through the series. That means Fos gets drawn into this theme as well. Fos has existed for some time apparently without having a real job, without having a real purpose in the society, and the others kind of look at her as though she has no value, that she's a waste of space, an impediment, and it's not like Fos herself didn't want a job. She wanted a specific type of job that she thought had value, but it's a job that she's ultimately unsuited for. We talked about it before, but getting the encyclopedia job was unsatisfactory to her until the idea of making a great discovery came to her. But even that was not purpose enough. It was not until she fixed upon trying to help out Cinnabar that, in some ways, her life had meaning. The first time we see her in the series, she's idly laying in the grass. No cares, concerns, or responsibilities in the world. But after making promise to Cinnabar and taking that burden upon her, She's never not thinking about that. It seems she's never not concerned about it, trying to do something to help it, trying to explore what she can do, wrestling with herself about whether it was a good idea or not. The point is, given purpose, she suddenly sees herself as having value, acts like it, and I think eventually other people will treat her that way as well. The other way this theme gets played this time, and we're gonna have a little bit of a theme bleed over here, but when Ventricosis is trying to explain to Fos about what death is, she implies that no matter how sad it is, death actually gives some meaning to life. That in the same way having a job and purpose gives value to the gem's lives, the fact that mortality has an endpoint gives that life itself some meaning. Now that can definitely be a theme unto itself, and it's certainly an idea that a lot of literature has explored. But this definitely is an interesting avenue in which to explore it. A lot of fantasy sci-fi stories that include immortal characters will eventually bring this up. Mortals have a certain urgency to the things they do and care about because they know their time is limited. And immortals, who don't have this urgency, uh, can afford to sort of meander through their lives. I think this is very much why there's no sense of urgency about dealing with Cinnabar. Not from Congo, not from Rutil, not from anyone else that actually understands the situation. They all have this idea that, well, since we're immortal, we'll eventually figure it out. As long as you don't get taken away, something can be done about it. It's only Fos who knows Cinnabar's borderline suicidal thoughts that has a sense of urgency about it. That is to say that that mortality, sort of, for Cinnabar gives Fos haste, gives her focus, makes it important. It gives her urgency. Death, for all mortal beings, serves the same purpose. If your days are limited, you have to make your days count. 
Anyway, this is definitely straying into other thematic territory. I'll talk about it when I get down here. You can probably see already. I don't know entirely what to call this theme, but uh, anyway. We do have some pairs in opposition. The obvious one is the Admirabilis compared to the Gems. They do, of course, have a lot in common. They do seem to look alike. They apparently may have a shared ancestor in humanity. Even though it's only Phos that can understand Ventricosis, Ventricosis understands all the rest of the gems fine. And more importantly, it's not just language. She understands what's making them tick. She understands their motivations. This is really the only reason she's able to manipulate Phos in the first place. So they have a lot in common, but there are some ways they're very different. The Admirabilis are very changeable and the gems, as we keep saying, are very static. Ventricosis has been in three different forms that we've seen her already. Giant snail, little multi-leg slimy puppy version, and then what seems like her actual true humanoid form, in which she is one part mermaid, one part squid. These are really dramatic changes. Meanwhile, the gems don't change at all. They get cracked and broken and put back together, but they seem to come back together the same way. This is very nicely symbolic of the real difference between them, which is their mortals and immortals. Now we already went over the way that influences their day-to-day -day sense of urgency, but it also appears to change the way they even look at the world. Let me give you an example. After Ventricosis turns into her real form, and she's no longer being carried around in a little wooden bowl, Ventricosis tells Phos that she can just throw that bowl away now, right? It's no longer needed. It's disposable. But Phos won't do that. There's no way it's disposable. In her society, you hold on to and keep everything. I mean, we've had several references to how precious paper is. You can see they do a lot of repairing work, not a lot of new construction, new creation. In a society full of immortals, things are made to last, things are not disposable, okay? In a mortal society, mortals themselves, in a sense, are disposable, and they may look at their environment that way as well. They may look at the things they create and the things that already exist as disposable, replaceable. It's clear the two societies will have very opposite takes on this matter. And I think it's directly related to being immortal, relatively unchanging, and being mortal, replaceable, very changeable. Existential angst gets a little more play, mostly again concerning Cinnabar. Not to go back over how heartbreaking the scene is with her and the flowers and Congo, but I think it's worth noting that being an immortal probably makes existential angst that much worse. She has a long time to wallow in the sense of not having any purpose, the sense of isolation. I think the gems in their immortal state normally deal with this by either being very focused on a single thing, but also being somewhat withdrawn from the world, somewhat disconnected. Euclid talks a bit about how they are not in tune with the change of the seasons the way the plants are, how they're not attuned to danger the way the insects are, that generally speaking the gems might be viewing the world almost through sheets of gauze, that their immortality makes them disconnected. Rutil even comments on how they don't seem to be very alarmed that their enemy has changed tactics, like they're not actually capable of being that alarmed. So I think generally they're actually kind of disconnected from things. It seems Cinnabar is not as disconnected. She actually, I think, is probably very passionate, very tuned in, very aware and perceptive person, and this totally works against her as an immortal. Then we have Metamorphosis theme. I think there's some obvious bullet points for this. Ventricosis wholesale changing what she is depending on the environment she's in, depending on the situation she finds herself in. It says a lot about how changeable her culture is compared to Phos's. But the real thing she imparts to us for this theme is this idea of humanity descending into three different sentient species. And she turns around and raises the specter of them metamorphosizing back into humanity, or something like it. Really kind of too early to know if that's the direction the series is going in, but I sure wouldn't be shocked to have all of these personal metamorphoses, all the changes that the various characters we've met are going through, be echoed in some much larger, much more fundamental metamorphosis that these societies and these species go through. Bringing about a true metamorphosis might be the Lunarian's main goal. Again, we don't know enough to know that, but certainly there are hints at that kind of thematic consistency so far. Finally then, I've written up here, unknown theme. And this is the thing I've been struggling with. It is exceedingly rare in anime to have the creators make scenes that are so obviously about the main theme of a series, the way we got in this episode. That entire conversation between Phos and Ventricosis, once Ventricosis takes her true form, is the heart of what they've been building to, I think, to this point. It's a huge reveal that there's a third sentient species. The seriousness of what they talk about is contrasted so much by the silliness of what came right before it. 
which is of course now why all that makes sense, then it's capped off in your mind with this betrayal and huge cliffhanger that puts Fos in the path of the mortal enemy that we knew was the enemy from the very first minutes of the series. Everything about this scene says that they're drawing a gigantic circle around it and saying, pay attention to this. So what is the theme of that scene? I think it's a lot of different things and I can't decide if it's supposed to be unified. It certainly shares a lot of overlap with things we've already talked about, but it raises some things that hadn't come up to this point. One of the things touched on is the fact that the Admirabilists have to reproduce. So we have this tension between mortality and immortality, between change and permanence. Coupled in with that is the way that death and everything it implies gives some value and purpose. At the same time this is happening, we get this tale that I am pretty sure is talking about the Holocene extinction. The fact that humans in this world caused a mass extinction event, it changed things dramatically, including humanity, who then descended into these three sentient species. This, for the first time, suggests an environmental theme. An environmental theme is not at all at odds with this idea of change versus permanence. The idea of the environment will just continue the way it is and be permanent versus it being changed in dramatic fashion by, say, oh, I don't know, humans destroying environments and heating up the planet. And coupled with that is the noted difference in the way Fos treats the wooden bowl versus the way Ventricosis looks at it as disposable. And all of that can be put together with the idea that these species which descended from humans are different from each other. When Fos raises the idea that maybe getting the band back together and bringing humans back into the world would be a good idea, Ventricosis points out that the Lunarians have no enemy but lust after warfare. We already know they have a material lust, right? They've captured all the Admirabilists just for their shells. They're trying to capture all the gems for their gems. And she says, maybe it's not such a good idea to get the band back together. Maybe we don't want to be the way humans were. Maybe we're better off, right? Maybe humans had some unsavory qualities. So what, when you take all this together, is the show trying to say? I think I'm struggling with this because at the moment, we don't have enough information to know where we're going with this. And anything I try to connect might be speculation. Let me give you an example. This is straying very much into allegory territory. Like, what if humanity was split in such a way that the different sentient species embody different aspects of the human condition, human tendencies? I've pointed out already that ventricosis is full of desire, which the gems themselves don't seem to have. We know the Lunarians are warlike and greedy, which the gems certainly don't seem to be. I'm not entirely sure the gems even have a concept of personal ownership. The Admirabilists, I'm sure, have some things they value as a society that we don't even know about yet. So what we potentially have here are three divisions of humanity at war with each other. The same way one could say that humans are at war with themselves, right? But this is basically breaking philosophical ideas down into societies, which is very much in line with making this a grand allegory. The problem with trying to go ahead and skip ahead and say that's what this is, I don't have that information yet. That is way too much speculation, not theme. Theme should be about the patterns we notice so far, not the patterns we anticipate seeing. So I say all of that to say, we're gonna be watching this. Obviously something's going on. Obviously the showrunners wanted us to pay a lot of attention to this conversation, to the mythology we have so far, to what it may mean for the future, and the way these species are different from each other. The fact that they might have all come from humanity and may in fact be trying to bring humanity back suggests that they have a focus on philosophy and human psychology as one of their driving desires to tell the story in the first place. This may in fact not just be a single theme that I'm noticing. There might be a man's inhumanity to man theme and an environmentalism theme and a learning from the sins of the past theme. We don't know yet. They actually might all be unified but this is the thing I've been trying really hard to wrap my mind around. It's clear this episode wanted to spend a lot of focus on this, and it may be that we don't have an answer in the immediate future. I could very much see where the next episode would be much more plot, action, goal, conflict driven, rather than answering any of these questions I just brought up. So for now, unknown theme, potentially unknown themes, we'll keep an eye on it, but I don't want to nail it down with a label just yet. Hopefully you understand what I mean when I can see that something much bigger is going on here, but we don't have enough pieces to see what the puzzle looks like yet. 
So now to our last two sections, what to watch for and speculation. Let me try to move us along because I know this video will end up being pretty long. And what to watch for, next time we will finally learn a little something about the Lunarians as characters. So far they've been an unknowable alien force, right? Don't let the fact that they're humanoid fool you. They could be insects or a giant cloud for all the characterization we've gotten so far. Everything we know about them is secondhand. But next time we will get to see if this little deal they've made with Ventricosis is something that they uphold. Do they take Fos or any of the gems that come to save her, whatever the deal is there, and give the brother back, or do they go for the double cross? This will be our very first peek into how the Lunarians behave as characters, what their own code of ethics, morality, trustworthiness, honor, any of that is. Something else we'll get to see in the gem society is how do they react to Fos's disobedience? We've already seen how they react to Fos in Crisis, right? But this was an instance where she was specifically told not to do this thing, did it anyway, and now is probably going to put other members of society in danger. How do the other gems react to this? How does Master Kongo react to this? Will they all react the same way? Will the way they react break depending on how they feel about Fos, or simply how they feel about obedience itself? And I think it'll be interesting to see how Kongo deals with direct insubordination like this assuming Fos is even around to be dealt with. I think it'll also be interesting to see if Fos was singled out specifically. We've heard it told already that she is a minty green color that the Lunarians are fond of, but this whole plot seems pretty elaborate just to get Fos. I mentioned already that I think it's most likely that it's actually a trap to get more than one of them, because they certainly can't pull this kind of double cross again, but I wonder if Fos was singled out. Ventricosis makes an offhand comment that she wasn't expecting to only be able to communicate with one of them, so it may be the fact that she ate Fos, and that's the reason Fos can understand her, and maybe the reason she can understand the gems in the first place, was just coincidence. But considering how perfectly Fos's personality and her own goals suited Ventricosa's goal of luring her away, I would be surprised to find out that she was singled out. But that raises another question, and something I wanted to watch for already, which is how much do the Lunarians actually know about gem society? How do they know where to show up and when? How do they know this was even going to work or even have a possibility of working? Also want to watch to see how Ventricosis really is as a character. Now that the facade is down, now that the trap is sprung, how will she behave? Because we can kind of throw out a lot of the things we know about her so far. I think sometimes she was being genuine. I think sometimes she was putting on a certain persona to get what she wanted. But it'll be interesting to see if she's sympathetic towards the gems now that she's lived among them, now that she's gotten to know a few of them. I mean, she obviously was a conspirator from the beginning. Despite acting like she couldn't have thought or had no way to think clearly when she was a giant snail, the Lunarians would have had to have explained this whole scheme to her while she was in that form, or it never would have worked. But even though she was a conspirator from the beginning, she had no context for what she was doing, right? Like, if you told Morgana and Gaucher that they could get Heliodor back, and all they have to do is infiltrate this kingdom full of weird snail people, I don't think that they would object to that. I think they might jump on that chance. Finding out later that the snail squid guys are very much like you might give you some pause, but it may not change you actually betraying them to try to get one of your own back. Once Ventricosis gets her brother back, if that happens, we'll get to see how she really feels. Was she just a mercenary in all this? Is she actually empathetic to a fellow sentient species, especially one who is also plagued by the Lunarians? She remarked already how the Lunarians' ways are sort of eerie and incomprehensible. Does she feel the same way about the gems? Or are they more of a kind with each other? I mean, I do think it is significant that right before the betrayal, she tries to relate to Fos that the way you feel about Cinnabar, I have someone I feel that way too. You're willing to risk and disobey and do things that you might not normally do for that person. Me too. And she even apologizes to her right before it happens. So this suggests that there's not a complete lack of empathy here, but I do think it'll be very interesting to see how far that goes. Because presumably, the Admirabilis and the Gems would make a good alliance against the Lunarians. I mean, they are both enemies here, right? Yeah, we'll see. Lastly, speculation. All right. I want to start with something that's not exactly speculation, which is usually me saying, I think this may happen. This is more like, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but here are a bunch of guesses about what I think may happen, alright? What I want to talk about is the very opening scene of this episode. It appears to be a dream that Master Kongo is having during his meditation, where he is surrounded by Lunarians. 
and they are all kind of worshiping him and looking at him like he's some sort of a deity. And then he produces kind of a giant expanding ball of light or a supernova or something in his hands, which wipes all of them out. It then cuts to shots of the deep ocean, deep rolling waves, and then he wakes up and says, that was reckless. Now what in the world does all that mean? Is Master Congo a renegade Lunarian? Is he to the gems the same kind of thing that the larger Lunarians are to the smaller Lunarians? Sorry, there's no terminology yet for that. I, mean, I can't help but notice that the size disparity between him and the gems is not at all unlike the size disparity with the two types of Lunarians we've seen. Is it possible that he's none of the above? That he is actually some kind of real deity? Is he the last true human? Is he the embodiment of the Holocene extinction? I.e., is he the sixth moon? Is he some kind of force that separated the bad aspects of humanity away from the good aspects of it? And he's trying to prevent the Lunarians reuniting them because he sees the Lunarians as the bad aspects of humanity. I mean, I think Master Congo recognized that Ventricosis was a member of this other species. He's the only one that treated with her like she was an equal, even says as much. I think he very much knows what's going on more so than the gems do. I don't think he would be surprised by her tale at all. Now, which of these things am I speculating that he actually is? Uh, I don't know. I think all of these make an interesting way to take the story and several of them match some of our emerging themes as well. The fact of cutting from the destroying of the Lunarians directly to the ocean makes me want to side on the idea that he was involved or bore witness to that last major extinction event, whether he was a cause of it or the actual personification of it or whatever. The way that cuts to the ocean like that gives me that idea. Like, why do that otherwise? Um, I think Ventricosa's brother will turn out to be very different from her. Uh, Ocleatus, or whatever the heck his name is. In the same way that the gems are not terribly different from each other, I think the contrasting Admirabilis will be very different from each other. I think their personalities, probably their physicality will be very different. And we can already see that his shell form is very different than her snail shell form was. It wouldn't surprise me if the differences continue from there. This is especially true because the Lunarians seem to be almost hive mind. They are almost indistinguishable from each other. So I feel like the Admirabilis probably sit on the other end of that spectrum with our gems in the middle. Um, I speculate that Cinnabar will play a role in coming to Fos's aid. I don't know if they get there while she's still in the ocean. I do think this is a setup. It's meant to get multiples of them out there because this is way too much trouble to just try to get Fos. I think showing the scene where Daya discovers that Fos is missing, that she's missing on purpose, I think that sets us up to go right into her rousing the troops. I don't think there's any reason to show us that scene in this episode otherwise. I'd also think that they have set up Bort and their dynamic such that when Daya comes to Bort for aid, she's going to refuse her. I think the split between them and the way they've been personified so far really suggests that'll be what happened. And now that Daya knows the thing between Cinnabar and Fos, she'll probably go to Cinnabar next for help. I have no idea who else will come to help, but I'm pretty sure that Cinnabar and or Daya for sure are going to be involved. Now this may actually be what happens to Cinnabar. I predicted a long time ago that something was going to happen to her, uh, mostly because of the butterfly analogy, but I could see where this would be the thing that does it. And it being so clearly Fos's fault by disobeying, by putting her in that situation, by her trying to bail her out again, would be a perfect catapult propelling Fos through the rest of the series. Fos's goal to save Cinnabar will take an entire new twist if that's what happens. And finally, kind of related to that, I don't think this is going to get resolved with Master Congo just snapping his fingers or Bort making short work with him, all right? I think it actually might turn out to be that Congo can't leave that island for some reason. I have no idea why I'm guessing that, but the prohibition against them going to the sea gives me a little bit of reason to believe that. It certainly would explain why the Lunarians wanted to lure her so far away from the island. It may be, in fact, that this is all a diversion and the island is still their target. They want to bring everyone in to try to rescue Fos and then actually go after the island. I don't know. But I feel like there's a chance that Master Congo can't leave. And I don't know why, but he clearly is different from everyone else. And because he's such an instant win in these situations, giving further restrictions to that power makes sense narratively, you know? So it wouldn't surprise me if that's what this whole gambit is about. And that will be the end of the discussion on this episode. This really took me much longer than normal. It took me a lot of time to get my notes in order. I've been over why I've struggled with this so much. I felt it was really important to try to get this episode right. And I'm not so sure I actually did that. 
But I know this episode will probably turn out to be a little bit longer than normal. I actually shot it over more than one day, which is very atypical for the way I do this usually. But I definitely struggled to get this as right as I think I got it. But I know for sure I'm missing some things. I know for sure there are some ways these things are connected together that I can't quite enumerate. But eventually a video has to be made. Here we are. That is the end of this one. I'm pretty excited for all the new thematic elements that have been introduced this time, and our mythology, and the origin of all this, and where it may be going. It's all very fascinating. I apologize to the series for coming down on it so hard last time. I really thought it had jumped the shark for a second there, but it was all a ruse, and you got me. So, I'm excited about next time. I will see you then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.